begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion, and today is Emily Vanderbush's birthday. Uh, Happy birthday, Emily. Thank you, Tommy. So for you very kind listeners that want to uh, send her a kind greeting, do it on Twitter, at E.M. Vanderbush. Oh She'd be very happy to receive your happy birthday wishes there. I'd love to see a few messages there wishing her a happy birthday. Well, thank you, Tommy. Uh, It is a big week this week. You know what else is going on besides my birthday. Uh, Tomorrow, we have the big landmark case of the Supreme Court being argued, the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, We're going to be having some guests on in a little bit. I thought you were about to say we're going to be having some cake. Gosh. No, no no cake in here today. So we do. We have um, Emily Gao uh, from the Heritage Foundation and Matt Sharp from ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, to help us think through the implications of this case, what it means, and how it'll all go. Yeah, definitely looking at uh, the religious liberty or the impact that this will have on religious liberty moving forward. I didn't know. It's a fascinating interview. Um, obviously, I knew it was a big deal, but uh, the interview sort of helped put it in perspective for me. Just what's at stake and why why everybody's so ginned up about this case. It's not just about cakes, obviously, uh, right. but we'll find out when we roll the tape on that. Yeah. Uh, so, Tommy, I guess we better revisit a topic that has been a big topic on the show the past few weeks, tax reform. We had a huge development uh, late Friday. Tell us about that. Well, so the Senate passed their bill. It was early Saturday. It early was like Saturday. 1 o'clock in the morning. The Senate passed their bill. 51 Republican votes didn't even need Vice President Pence. They, they got all of them except for Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, who's retiring. Um, okay, he didn't want to vote for tax cuts. Uh, everybody else did. And that's exciting. Keep in mind, what, what does this bill mean? It's a tax cut for individuals in the middle class, and it's a tax cut for corporations and businesses that is going to make us more competitive, keep more money in the economy, uh, and lead to economic growth. Both those things are a big deal. Obviously, we all want tax cuts on the individual side, and the average family of four is going to get an $1,182 tax cut. Three cheers for that, uh, but four cheers for the economic growth that's going to come along uh, with making our tax code uh, more competitive. That's a big deal. GDP growth of 3% is what's projected by the Heritage Foundation and the Tax Foundation, um, and we can't wait to see that. That's the real, that's the real value. Uh, we're, we're not there yet. A version has passed the House. Mm-hmm. A version has passed the Senate. We've got to reconcile the two somehow, um, get that conference version to pass both chambers and then put it on the president's desk. Um, that process is going to begin tonight in the House. They're going to vote on a motion to go to conference. That'll pass. The Senate will do the same, and magically they'll be in conference working on a compromise bill. Um, the bills aren't too far apart. There's some, there's some key differences. The Senate bill um, eliminates the tax penalty for the individual mandate. That's a big deal. Hopefully, the, 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 that position will win in the conference. We'll see what else will change. But ultimately, I, I'm predicting now that this bill is going to land on the president's desk uh, before Christmas. And here's to hoping he's wearing a Santa suit when he signs it. I think I mentioned on the show last week, I'm really, I think that would be great, uh, great to see. So we'll see if it happens. That's true. He promised tax reform by Christmas. So the clock is ticking. We're getting close. Uh, what else has been going on on the Hill around the country? Well, uh, federal government spending expires on Friday. That's right. Dun, dun, dun. 
so this week is the week that the news chimes in with predictions of a shutdown and scary music and interviews with senators in the hallway talking about why or why not the government's going to shut down. But here's the scene. Um, the bill expires on uh, Friday, December the 8th, this Friday. Remember, this was set up by the uh, President Trump, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer deal. Remember the deal at the beginning of September? Uh, so th- that this is that deadline. Um, it looks like they're going to miss it. Uh, they, they don't have a long-term deal set up. Uh, of course, they can always do a short-term <laughs> CR, continuing resolution. That's the plan this time. A two-week CR expires three days before Christmas, Friday, oh, December yeah. the 22nd. Why wouldn't you want a major legislative cliff? Right before Christmas. Two days before Christmas. Of course you would want that. So it looks like that's what they're going to do, but... Um, even that requires Democrat cooperation. Some of them are saying they're not going to vote for anything unless they get amnesty for DACA recipients um, and unless they get uh, the same amount of increase on domestic spending as Republicans are are wanting to increase defense spending by. So they're trying to extract some leverage. Who knows if they'll flirt with a shutdown? Um, if they do, we, we know what to say in that event. Um but uh, that'll all play out either this week or on Friday, December 22nd. Um, instead of last-minute shopping, we can be watching the news about a shutdown. Um, and then, you know, there's always the option for another CR then. Uh, but at some point, the rubber's going to meet the road, and either the parties are going to come to a deal or they're not. And we'll find out. We'll be biting our nails watching that one. We also have this uh, this sexual harassment cloud hanging over the Congress these days. Several, uh, well, uh, some senators and congressmen have been accused of um, pretty grave sexual harassment. Um, Al Franken, uh, John Conyers, uh, Blake Farenthold among them. Uh, this is a hot topic on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a complicated topic. The, the House um, tried sort of the pathetic Band-Aid of, uh, of a requirement that they – submit themselves to like a one-hour sensitivity training video as if the video would solve the problem. Um, But I I do think this is going to continue to make news. I don't know if there are more revelations to come out, but certainly the ones that have uh, are as of yet unresolved. Um, And of course, that drumbeat's going to keep going. So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. Yeah, and isn't one of the big issues, especially on Capitol Hill, is the issue of some of the settlements getting paid out from taxpayer dollars. What's the deal with that? That's right. Um, in, in several of these cases, a member of Congress was accused and a settlement was reached with the accuser. Um, and the payout came from taxpayer dollars, whether it was from the um, certain um, slush fund uh, that the House Administration uh, Committee uh, works, or if it was from the, the member's um, representational allowance, it's called, basically their office budget. Either way, it's taxpayer money, um, and they, they paid it out um, to cover up um, and, and you know keep it private that they were accused of sexual harassment. Uh, I don't like that. That's my money. I like to say on this show, I want my money back. So let me say in this instance, I want my money back. <laughs> That is totally fair. Uh, are there any moves on behalf of, or on the part of Congress to stop this practice? Congressman uh, DeSantis has a bill that would uh, require that any of these payments be uh, made public uh, and that the members be required to pay them back. Uh, we'll see w- where that bill goes. But, uh, yeah, uh, he's not the only one with a proposed solution, but that's, I think, the most comprehensive and strongest solution. That's Congressman DeSantis from Florida. And now a word from our fellow podcasters at SCOTUS 101. 
Hi, I'm Tiffany Bates. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. If you like listening to Mass Ave, we encourage you to check out our Heritage Foundation podcast called SCOTUS 101. On SCOTUS 101, Tiffany and I break down what's going on at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We also play trivia. Check out SCOTUS 101 on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts today. Today we have two special guests joining us today. We have Emily Gao, who is the director of the DeVos Center for Religious and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. We also have Matt Sharp from Alliance Defending Freedom, who serves as a senior counsel with ADF, where he directs the Center for Legislative Advocacy. An important note on this is ADF, or a lawyer from ADF rather, um, is going to be presenting the arguments before the Supreme Court for, uh, for the case that we're discussing today. Thank you so much for joining us. Emily and Matt, welcome to Mass Ave. It's a real pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast today. Um, there's a big, a big event this week starting tomorrow. Oral arguments um, in the Masterpiece Cakes case. Uh, could, could Matt? Could you summarize the case for us? Sure. So Jack Phillips is a cake artist in uh, Colorado, outside the suburbs of Denver, and he has for years sought to design cakes consistent with his faith. Um, he's incredible at what he does. We had a, a same-sex couple visit his shop asking him to do a custom cake for their same-sex wedding. And Jack politely told them, I will sell you anything else in the store, any other goods you want. But for me, marriage is sacred, and, and I won't be able to design this. And, and this was consistent with his practice. He wouldn't design custom cakes for uh, anti-American messages or racist messages or even a div- cake celebrating divorce. Um, but unfortunately, the state of Colorado and this couple sued him and said, you have to create this cake uh, under Colorado's anti-discrimination law, which protects gender identity and sexual orientation as a protected class. And so Jack is now suing, saying the government cannot compel me to create messages, to create art that conflicts with my religious beliefs. And we're at the Supreme Court stage in this case. Uh, How has the early court proceedings or the early decisions gone? Not well. Uh, Every step along the way, we encountered very hostile judges who were ruling against Jack. In fact, at the uh, administrative court level, they told Jack that not only does he have to create the cake for this couple, but that uh, he has to go through training for his him and his entire family um, to sort of get in line with the new orthodoxy. And that also for from now until the end of time, he would have to provide quarterly reports on whatever cakes he declines to make sure he's not discriminating in the eyes of the commission. Um, okay, so now I'm wondering. We're going to go to the implications of the case and the legal stuff in a minute. But now I'm wondering: Has the wedding happened? Did he bake the cake? What happened? He he did not. The, the celebration went forward, and Jack is now unable to produce any wedding cakes. It's cost him over forty percent of his business. Uh, has had to lay off numerous staff members, and all of this because he wanted to operate consistent with his faith. So the state of Colorado took away his license to bake. Well, he's still he's still baking, but he cannot do wedding cakes because if he does so, he must do same-sex wedding cakes. Oh, okay. So the ruling has been if you're going to bake any cakes, you've got to bake all the cakes. That's right. Okay. All right. Um, fascinating. And, and this fits in with um, a broader narrative that we've seen since the Obergefell decision uh, where same-sex marriage became the law of the land throughout the country. Uh, what is that narrative? Um, tell us a little bit more about that, Emily. Sure, Tommy. Well, since Obergefell, we've seen a disturbing trend in several professions of exclusion of people from those professions because of their support for traditional marriage. And by that, I mean people who have been punished, they've been fired from their jobs, they've been denied promotions. So a few examples of that. Um, Recently, Colonel Bohannon in the Air Force 
was removed from duty because he declined to sign a letter in support of a spouse in a same-sex couple. Uh, there's a case in Michigan of uh, Stephen Bridget Tennis, who run a family farm. They were not allowed by the city of East Lansing to sell their fruit at a farmer's market simply because they declined to host a same-sex wedding at their farm. And there are several other professions that have been affected, law, entertainment, business. Um, I could go on and on. And there are also the institutions, the faith-based charities that the ACLU is suing so that they can no longer provide services for adoption and foster care. And also faith-based schools, um, K-12 through schools and higher education that are under threat because they support traditional marriage. So in all of those cases, what the what the government is saying is if you if you if the tenets of your religious faith hold that marriage is between a man and a woman and you're practicing that faith, you're living it out, you're guilty of discrimination um, and you're guilty of a crime. So there are actually two states that have criminal penalties attached to their public accommodations or anti-discrimination laws. Um, there was recently a case that ADF had of a videographer in Minnesota that couldn't even enter the wedding business because they knew they would face criminal penalties if they didn't do same-sex weddings. Uh, so, yeah, there is just an overall very problematic um, equivalency that people are making when they're conflating disagreement about marriage with discrimination. Just because you don't agree with same-sex marriage, you believe in traditional marriage, doesn't mean you are discriminating against people because of their sexual orientation. There are plenty of other reasons why people support marriage between one man and one woman. And we're really hopeful that the Supreme Court will follow its own precedent because after Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court was asked, does you know pro-life advocacy um, opposition to abortion is that only because of hatred towards women and misogyny? And the Supreme Court said, no, that's an irrational surrogate. That's an irrational comparison to make. There are plenty of other reasons why people oppose abortion, basically because of their views about life. It doesn't have to be because you're anti-woman. And we hope the Supreme Court will recognize that same distinction between opposition to an idea and opposition to a class of people. It's pretty common sense. Yeah, and and it also has uh, the protection of the freedom of religion. Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about somebody who's just decided, you know, I don't like gay weddings. We're talking about somebody who holds this as a dearly held conviction of their religious faith being compelled to violate that uh, by the government. Um, well, let's dive in back into the specifics of the case in just a second. But I want to ask, Obergefell was two years ago. Could it be that in, in the span of two years, we've gone from in the majority of states, traditional marriage being the only available kind of marriage, um, to holding a personal view that marriage is between a man and a woman being criminal? It's shocking, yeah. But the how rapidly things have changed, but the decline or the the decline in religious freedom, the increase in hostility towards people who hold the view that marriage is between a man and a woman in the last two years, it has been really alarming, and also going from social hostility towards economic discrimination against people. I mean, these are very powerful tools that the government is using to compel their viewpoint of marriage, denying somebody the ability to earn 
a livelihood in many of these cases. People are completely losing their jobs. And in Jack Phillips' case, he's had to exit the wedding industry, which is for cake artists. That's the most lucrative part of cake baking. Yeah, I would say I don't think the culture has moved that fast. I think there's a handful of liberal activists who have moved that fast, um, and and the rest of us are are being punished for it. Um, okay, so on the on the legal merits of the case, um, you've got Jack Phillips who's being told by the government um, of Colorado that uh, he either must make this cake or must exit the wedding industry. Um, what is the legal precedence here? That is 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 he making art? Is art speech? Give us the sort of play by play on how this will go uh, in front of the court. Yeah. So what he does absolutely is art, and the Supreme Court has actually provided some great guidance on this. Um, they look to what other forms of speech has been recognized as art. As art, what other types have been uh, held to have First Amendment protection? And when you look at what Jack does, and I encourage you, you know, Google some of the videos, but he uses sculpting tools. He uses paint to paint on the different designs on the case and to shape the figurines. And, and in fact, he uh, his entry into this whole industry grew out of his love for art. He, he enjoyed it in high school and took all sorts of art classes, um, didn't really pay well uh, when he got out of college, so he gets a job with a bakery and then learns he can combine his love for art with his need to uh, earn a living and so is able to do these incredible designs. So there is clear protection for this. And what's interesting, we even had a, an amicus brief filed by a group of uh, artist bakers across the country that said, look, we don't necessarily agree with Jack's views and, and a lot of us would have baked the cake, but what he does is absolutely art and it should be entitled to First Amendment protection. So art is protected. Uh, the government or a customer can't compel you to create a certain kind of art with a certain message behind it. Do I have that correct? That's right. And this actually dates back to a case um, dealing with the Pledge of Allegiance. And so it was a, a group of Jehovah's Witness that uh, did not want to say the Pledge of Allegiance at school in the morning because they said, we've pledged allegiance to Jehovah. We cannot do it to the flag. And the government tried to compel them to do so. And it goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court says if there's any fixed star in our, our nation's orthodoxy is that the government can't decide what is orthodox and what is not and can't compel you to do that. And so there's been a long series of cases since then upholding this principle that the government should never have the ability to tell a person this is what you must speak. This is what you must create in terms of artwork. Uh, you have the freedom to decide that for yourself, to listen to your own moral compass and decide what you can and cannot speak and can and cannot create. So is it important from a legal standpoint that this is art and this is speech, or if it were speakers for the music to play on, would that be different? It absolutely does, because one of the examples we come up and say, well, you know, would this mean that a, uh, the local pizza hut could refuse to provide pizzas catered for a same-sex wedding? And, and that's what separates it. One is a food item. What Jack does is not just cake. It is truly artwork. Um, it is it is taking uh, the the canvas of, of flour and uh, eggs and all of this stuff and creating something that expresses a message about the the sanctity of of marriage and what it represents, especially in his eyes before God. And looking at the long term, what are some of the bigger ramifications of this case and the outcome of it? Are there other cases around the country that might also be impacted by what the justices decide? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Jack is one of many creative professionals that are being subject to these laws. A lot of people have heard of Baronel Stutzman, the uh, floral designer in Washington State, and Emily mentioned several others as well, some videographers, uh, even a couple that uh, operates a wedding venue out of their home and, and was kicked out of the local farmer's market. But even beyond that, you think of examples of uh, speechwriters. So does this now mean a Democrat speechwriter must be compelled to write a speech for Donald Trump? Uh, we all remember the Bruhaha over Melania's well, dress. We should have that just because it would be interesting. That's right. <laughs> if there's a Democratic speechwriter that would be willing to, let's fire that up. <laughs> so there really are, if you take this principle that the government now has the authority to compel speech, then it, it really can extend into a lot of areas. And I think we'll eventually start seeing it in the nonprofit sector and uh, even what happens in churches. Yeah, it sounds like um, big big implications um, for religious expression, for uh, for uh, the wedding industry in particular, uh, for art, for speech, for all of this. So it's going to touch all of our lives. Um, handicap this for us. Close case, uh, blowout. What are we talking about in terms of votes here? I think everybody expects this is going to be a close case. Um, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to look at a similar case, Elaine Photography, a few years ago. Took a pass on that one. Um, and so we do think this is going to be close. We know Obergefell was close. And uh, I think a lot of people are looking to Justice Kennedy as often serving as the swing vote that he may be so as well. But we look at it and say, if you look at the principle, though, um, just a few years ago, we actually had a, a almost, I think, a unanimous victory in a case dealing with compelled speech. Um, dealing, It's called Hurley. It dealt with a parade that did not want to include a float uh, expressing an pro-LGBT message. And the Supreme Court there said very clearly, including the liberal justices, the government cannot compel you to create and include speech that violates your convictions. All right. Well, I guess we will be watching this closely, or at least the arguments closely tomorrow. Uh, stand by for obviously more uh, more coming out of the Heritage Foundation and ADF as well on, on how that went. Thanks so much for joining us today, y'all. Thanks Thank a you. lot for joining. Just real quick so our listeners know, oral arguments tomorrow, but we won't have a decision until April, May, June, sometime in there. Is that right? Yep. I, I would expect this one's going to go all the way to the end of the term. Okay. And somebody told me this morning, I thought this was interesting, that all three decisions on um, same-sex marriage have come on June 26th. Is that right? Uh, sounds about right. I know they've all been around <laughs> Maybe it's that one time. of those conspiracy theories mm-hmm. out there, but somebody uh, was sure of that this morning. They all come at the end of the term. Yeah, okay. They all came at the end of the term. Thanks very much for coming on Mass Ave. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, Tommy and Emily. This is Ginny Maltabano. And for this week's Ask the Expert, I'm here with Niall Gardner. He's the director for the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at Heritage. Niall, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. You've had two recent pieces out in the past week, one on Fox News Opinion, one for our own Daily Signal about the U.S.-U.K. relationship. And in both pieces, you describe it as a special relationship. Can you explain what that means and why it's so significant globally? Well, the U.S.-U.K. special relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And the United States and the United Kingdom, the alliance between the two countries really in many ways, is the beating heart of the free world. And the US, UK really are together at the helm of the free world, um, spreading liberty and freedom across the world, defending the cause of freedom, fighting against terrorism. Uh, They are the two countries who always take a stand for the principles of of freedom uh, and liberty. And the special relationship is embodied by a very close-knit defence relationship, close-knit intelligence relationship, 
an extremely close uh, economic and trading uh, uh, partnership. It's also uh, a special relationship between two countries that ha- share a common world vision, a common, uh, I would say, perspective on how to deal with the problems of the world. Um, and the US-UK relationship, I would say, is unrivaled. There's no comparison to it uh, anywhere else in the world. And in many ways, it's the envy of, of uh, you know, countries all over you know, Europe and Asia, uh, for example. Um, and it's been in place for over 70 years now. Um, and I expect it will be in place for a very, very long time to come. And in a very symbolic union, last week we saw Prince Harry announce his engagement to Meghan Markle, who is American. Prince Harry's popularity cannot be understated. Um, And you say that this engagement is good for both the royal family and for U.S.-U.K. relations. Can you describe the difference and why that's good? Yes, I I do think the the royal engagement is very good news, actually, for the royal family and for the special relationship and for the United States as well. Meghan Markle will be the first American to marry into the royal family. So that's a very significant development. She's marrying uh, Prince Harry, who is fifth in line to the throne. Um, Prince Harry is a very, very popular figure in Britain. Um, The the public absolutely loves uh, Prince Harry. He's also – he's a war hero. He served in Afghanistan, two tours of duty there. Um, He's a a big supporter of uh, charities that assist with British uh, wounded veterans. So he's a a patron of a charity called Walking with the Wounded, and they do some fantastic work. He's also the founder of the Invictus Games, uh, which raises uh, a great deal of of funds to assist – injured uh, war veterans and their families. Uh, And so he's someone who I think has really uh, done an outstanding job representing Britain on the world stage. And I do think that the addition of Meghan Markle uh, will be very good for the royal family. Uh, She already had her first walkabout in London last week. She was met with huge crowds. She's very popular there. Uh, And and I think this this royal wedding will take place in the spring next year will be a great event for, for Britain, but also for America as well. Well, it was very clear in their first uh, public engagement in Nottingham last week uh, that the public does have tremendous goodwill for both of them. And it's also very clear that in the past couple of years, Prince Harry has really matured and taken on a great leadership role. How do you think his time in the military affected him and has impacted him? Yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that um, Prince Harry has military experience uh, and combat experience, actually, he served in southern Helmand province where the British soldiers were uh, originally based in Afghanistan. And he served his country with tremendous bravery. I, I think he emerged as a, as a natural leader. Uh, he would have gone to fight in, a, in Iraq, actually. Uh, but the, the British government felt it was too risky uh, to have him serve in Iraq once his sort of cover had been announced, actually, or blown in, in the media. Uh, and so he served in Afghanistan secretly, actually. But... Um, Already, the the jihadists, uh, you know, knew that uh, Prince Harry was um, was heading to uh, Iraq, and so the British government decided not to send him there. But but uh, Prince Harry served his country with great distinction, and I think he became, you know, a, a very strong uh, leader through his military uh, service. And he's someone who a lot of young uh, Britons really look up to. Uh, and and I think that you know, with his uh, impending, you know, wedding, his his position as that as that leader will be further entrenched. 
Very interesting. And on the flip side of things, we saw last week President Trump came under fire for some tweets and back and forth with Theresa May. Do you think this impacts our relationship with the UK in the long term in a negative way, or is it more just a short term, uncomfortable situation? I think that, um, you know, the tweeting controversy was unfortunate. It wasn't helpful to the special relationship. Uh, and uh, and I think that, um, you know, controversies like this are not necessarily um, the sorts of things that advance the special relationship. Now, having said that, I, I don't think that we're going to see any long-term damage to to the special relationship. Um, the, the president is is very pro-British. He likes Britain. He's very pro-Brexit. Um, the US and the UK have a lot of big issues to work through, including um, a US-UK free trade agreement. Uh, Britain needs America. America needs Britain. Um, and so um, I think that, uh, you know, this this sort of tweet controversy was used by the left in Britain as a battering ram against the United States. And so you saw a lot of Labour Party MPs who were calling for President Trump to be banned from America. There were calls for him to be arrested if he set foot in Britain. So some crazy talk from some really crazy left-wing politicians in in London. After all, the Labour Party is led by Jeremy Corbyn, who's an admirer of Cuba, Venezuela, a supporter of terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah, for example. So, you know, anything the Labour Party says, for example, has to be taken with a pinch of salt, really, because, you know, they, they really stand for some very, very extreme things. Um, the reality is that President Trump's visit to the UK will continue. There will be a state visit. Um, and the British government is not is not uh, shifting gears on this. I mean, there, there will be an official state visit at some stage. Right. You mentioned that the US and the UK are working on several issues together. It's an important partnership. Can you identify some more areas that we're working on together? And also, yeah. is this different than how the previous administration interacted with the UK? Yeah, I, I would say that there's very close cooperation between London and Washington on many, many fronts. Um, chief among them, of course, is the issue of uh, defeating ISIS and al-Qaeda and the broader Islamist threat. Britain has been the second biggest um, contributor to the US-led coalition in Iraq and uh, Syria. Um, Britain has been always at the forefront of the fight against uh, Islamist extremism and terrorism. Um, so that that's a key area where there's strong cooperation. I, I think there's also a lot of cooperation over over Iran and North Korea um, and, and also in terms of standing up to the Russian threat. The British have deployed a lot of troops to Eastern Europe, to the Baltic states, to fight alongside US forces against any kind of Russian threat to the Baltics. Um, and so... Anywhere in the world where there's some danger to the free world, the US and the UK are generally working together. Yes. Well, Niall, thank you so much for coming on. It's always fascinating to get your take on all of this. And I guess the countdown to spring 2018 is on for this royal wedding. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank uh, you again. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, we really love our listeners on Mass Ave. We love your feedback. We love your questions for Ask the Expert. Uh, remember to subscribe on iTunes so you'll know when we have a new episode. And we'd love also for you to check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast. Uh, also, follow the Heritage Foundation, all of our social channels, Facebook, Twitter. Um, great stuff to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. Signing off until next week. <laughs>